Hi, Janina. Hi, Emma. It's been a while. It has been a while, and it's been a particularly long time since we've done a normal one, because the last episode we did was live. And was great fun. It was very good fun. Yeah, um, but yeah, but now we're about to do a normal episode where we can edit the bits where we say nonsense out of it, and I won't get drunk <laughs> and forget all my words. Um, that's on the assumption that everything we say is not nonsense. Absolutely. Everything I say is a, a drop of gold from my lips, Janina, as you know. <laughs> Even the nonsense. <laughs> Especially the nonsense. If it, yeah, it's a, that's an insight into my psyche that one day biographers will die for. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean. Anyway, should we remind people here we are? Probably. It's been a while. So yeah. I am Janina Matthewson. I am a writer. And I am Emma Southern. I am a doctor of history and a writer of history books about Romans. Um, and together we are at History is Sexy, where we answer people's questions about history, the things that you can't be bothered to Google yourselves, or uh, don't trust the results that you get off Google, which is fair <laughs> enough. Or it is, is it too enough. complicated to Google? Every, I mean, to be fair, the one thing we've learned over the course of doing this podcast is that literally everything is too complicated to Google. It's true. If you can Google it and read something that looks like a neat list that explains it, they're lying to you. They're flat out lying. Just straight up lying. Yeah. Um, actually, I've got a good lie that I found in this one. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I think it's a lie. I can't find any evidence that it's not a lie. So, Speaking of, actually, should we break the news that we got last night about Chinese tickle torture? Before we oh, start. yes. I like genuinely this was so wild that I forgot that it happened. <laughs> <laughs> Instantly it's forgot about unreality. it. Approximately 14 hours ago it happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what happened was that last night we got a Facebook message because uh, we have a Facebook page um, from a very nice historian in America who thinks that he might be the patient zero of myth of Chinese tickle torture. And if you go back to our episode on Chinese tickle torture, you'll see that I got very angry about the fact that it's clearly not a thing that really happened and it seems to have spread like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And people kind of quote it in things that you can Google all the time. But he claims that he effectively developed it from tickling stuff in his own culture and it got inadvertently put online one of his high school papers and there ended up on wikipedia and now it is a myth that is known by everybody so we've got his email address and he's a professional historian and so hopefully we're going to be able to talk to him and do like a little special episode um when i've emailed him because we think that we have found the person who invented chinese tickle torture and he's a nice american man yeah it's very, very exciting. Also, it feels very much like um, there was an episode of This American Life a couple of weeks ago that was basically this, but about the myth that MSG is bad for you. Yes. Which was really, really interesting because two people had claimed to, had started that, but both in the same letter. It was like a letter in a medical journal. Um, yeah. And there was uh, the man who had wrote it, written the letter, who was a a Chinese American doctor and whose children all said he was, he is now dead and was dead by the time that this was being investigated. And all the children are like, yeah, he definitely wrote that. He talked about it all the time. And then this other random white American doctor who has apparently claimed for his entire life that he did it and yeah. that he made up the name and made up the um, institute that he was, that this <laughs> just made up a whole at. person. Yeah. And also talked about it all the time. <laughs> 
It's very, very wild. Apparently he was a bit of a prankster, so that maybe that was his the Maybe that's his prank. That, that was his prank was pretending that he started the MSG myth. When actually, what a world we live in. What a wild world. Yeah, so anyway, that's our big scoop. So we're basically the next reply all. <laughs> we are. Accidentally <laughs> we've, for now. we've become re- re- history's reply all. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why PJ Vay does all that journalism. We could just sit around and then <laughs> know, eventually so someone will reach out. Yeah. <laughs> all you have much to easier. do is chill in your home for several months after putting out an episode <laughs> and the journalism will come to you. Yeah, um, it should have thought that through, shouldn't they? <laughs> But today, going back to what we're actually here to talk about today, we're here to talk about the history of pets, which is our question, which comes from Oliver's lovely wife, Barbara. And she literally just asked, what's the history of pets? Which is a very, very big question. It is a very Um, big question. So I basically just focused on things that I find interesting, (laughs) which means that what I did was read loads about cats. (laughs) Um, Which is fair enough. I have done a bit of a dive into the actual process of domestication but focusing just on uh dogs cats with a with a a side order of rabbit because okay yeah um, rabbits it it came up and it was funny so okay um. fair enough (laughs) are you a pet person Janina I don't think I've ever asked you that did you have pets when you were growing up um so yes occasionally my parents are not particularly pet people um because I mean, they had five children, which was quite enough work to be going on with, I think. And also, we didn't have a lot of money, so we could never afford, like, the danger of you have a cat and then it has some sort of medical need that costs, like, thousands of dollars that we just didn't have. So it was, like, I think too big a financial risk most of the time. But we had a couple of cats. One when I was, like, seven or eight, maybe, and then one when I was a teenager. Very Um, good. What were your cats called? The one when I was younger was called Cece, um, and she was great. That sounds really good in your accent. Like, that sounds super cute <laughs> in a New Zealand accent. Um, and then the one when I was a teenager was called Tipsy, because when she was a kitten, she looked very drunk all the time. She walked sort of funny. <laughs> um, yeah. We did, before I remember it, we, um, like when I was a toddler, we, we had a dog, maybe a little bit older than a toddler, maybe like four we had a dog that just um, fell in love with another family and kept running away from us to go to their house. Um, and so ultimately my parents just gave it to them because clearly he loved them so much more than they loved us. That is brutal. Wow. <laughs> that happens in space when Colin the dog runs off with another family. <laughs> he runs off with an old lady. Yeah, it's very sad. But yeah, yeah I, like having, I like having an animal around. I'm very, we, we, are not, we can't have... Um, pets in our current flat which is a shame I think we would like to have a cat or a quiet dog if we could quiet dog yeah I had cats a lot when we were growing up we had cats when I was born which was my mum's cat called Bilbo and then we always had cats my dad claims to hate cats um, Mm -hmm. or at least used to claim to dislike cats but my mum's mum always had cats, so my mum always had cats, and the cats always loved my dad. Um, and he's never not had a cat. Mm-hmm. So since he was about nineteen, when he met my mum, I think they've ha- they've always had cats. <laughs> and then when him and my mum got divorced, he then met and married someone who also had cats, and now he has two massive cats. <laughs> so he's genuinely never not had a cat, <laughs> but he still insists that he doesn't really like them. But we had cats and hamsters and fish and 
my sister once uh, my sister is massive into animals my middle sister katie Mm -hmm. um so she snuck rats into the house and had rats and um she now has i'm trying to remember how many she's got now she's got a dog a tortoise i think she's got three cats now oh wow five lizards she did have this giant lizard this dragon thing that walked around the house like a puppy and was genuinely terrifying, but it died. <laughs> but she's mad on, oh, on animals. <laughs> we did so actually, we just have we, had them all the all over. We did have, um, for a hot minute when I was a kid, we had chinchillas. Oh, nice. Which apparently are really incredible pets if you spend a lot of time with them. They become really tame and they're right on your shoulder and they're really affectionate, but... Um, <laughs> Matthews and just aren't great at investing a lot of time and emotion <laughs> into animals. So I was kind of just like, we would take them out to play with them sometimes and they would just hide under furniture because we hadn't yeah. invested that and then we were very bad potential owners. They were not the right choice for us. Aww, but they that's... were very fun to watch in their dust because chinchillas, uh, they don't, you can't, they can't get wet. So they have this special dust that they clean themselves in. So they just sort okay. of roll around in a dust bath to get clean and it's very very fun to watch that is extremely cute it's very cute yeah Yeah. okay so we're both pet people that's good yeah and And also nice they're nice to have around like they are nice to have around and it turns out they've been around for a really long time really long time people just kind of just humans generally like having animals around yeah and well before we start do you want to know what i found i found that Pet is a word that no one really knows how it became attached to animals, which I like. That is very, I mean, it does seem like it makes sense, right? Yeah. Uh, so pet may or may not come from the French petite. Mm-hmm. Um, and But it was when it first emerges in the 1500s in English, it's used to describe a spoiled child mm-hmm. um, or a person who is treated as a favourite so, like, if the king has a favourite that he gives everything to, then that's his pet. But it's almost always applied to people mm. and then kind of gradually came to apply to animals much, much later. Like, um, And it, people use words like favourite animal or house animal or something like that rather than pet. And it's not until after the 18th century that people start using pet to refer to a cat that lives in your house. That's really and funny. And there's quite a lot of argument about what counts as a pet and mm-hmm. what terminology you should use when you're talking academically about animals that people have that hang around in their houses and companion animal seems to be the most kind of academic term of talking about pets because they're animals which are just kept around for their companionship and because people like to yeah hang out with them or think they're cute like hamsters yeah or livia who lives in the house and now has a tiny bed. <laughs> Yesterday, I made Connor go to Ikea and he came back with, no, I'm not going to say it's his fault, I forced him to come back with um, a tiny little doll bed that Ikea do and now it's Livia's bed and she slept in it. That is so amazing. <laughs> so she is like a spoiled child. <laughs> Um, yeah. Um, I also found that the Humane Society of America um, and other human rights campaigners really hate the word pet because they think it denies the it denies the dignity of animals. I think that is bullshit, and I'll get into this in a bit more detail 
read a bit of stuff up on domestication. And one of the things that it's very, very hard to narrow down what the word domestication means because we apply yes. it to all sorts of different situations. But one of the um, things that is generally true, although again, not 100%, is that um, after being domesticated, uh, that type of animal or breed of animal is then dependent on people. The extreme mm-hmm. example of that is um, Chinese silk moths. There are loads of insects that produce silk, but the the ones that we generally use to harvest silk, that silkworm or silk moth, they cannot live in the wild at all. They've been, we've been, we domesticated them like 5,000 years ago, I think. Thousands yeah, of years ago. Pigeons are a similar thing. But now thing. they can't... Um, They just can't survive on the wild. They don't exist in the wild at all. They are solely domesticated and completely reliant on people. And that's part of the process. So I feel like saying that you can't call an animal a pet because it denies their animal's agency, (laughs) ignores the fact that we have, over the course of thousands of years, made that animal reliant on us. And therefore, we have a responsibility to it. It's not like they are not solely independent. They they are. Yeah. Yeah. This is like one of my great bugbears, which is when people are horrible about pigeons in cities and towns in the West because we domesticated those pigeons. We spent like thousands of years having them as animals that lived in cages in our houses Mm -hmm. or in our gardens that were used for messages and used for all kinds of things. And then we invented the telegraph and stopped using them and just turfed them out onto the streets. Mm -hmm. And now hardly anybody keeps them except for like pigeon racers. Yeah. Like in Geordie Racer, a show you've definitely never heard of, but like maybe <laughs> 10 people I've will not heard of it. suddenly have great flashbacks to primary school. Um, <laughs> but the, like, and we just basically turfed them out and stopped having them because they were no longer useful to this and they're not cute enough to keep around. And so they just peck about and try to live off us. Like they didn't go into the wild or anything because we made it so that they don't have any instinct to look after themselves really <laughs> anymore. They just have to hang around humans who are mean to them and try not to die. Yeah. Poor little things. And then people kick them and are mean about them. And like, we did this. Like, take some responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm always like, don't be horrible. Um, possibly I'm just a bleeding heart. But also it's our fault that they have to hang around in our city centres and get beaten up by seagulls. I mean, it's all our fault and we did it for our own advancement. I saw a claim that um, the our humans beco- becoming the dominant species is directly related to our domesticating other animals. Oh, interesting. Um, and plants as well because we did domesticate plants too that's always really fun when you look at what plants looked like before we domesticated them yeah like i cannot believe anyone would look at that like how desperate must (laughs) like prehistory have been for people to look at this obviously inedible thing and be like i reckon if we work hard enough lads (laughs) we'll be able to turn that into something good (laughs) (laughs) if we just keep trying maybe one day we'll enjoy this corn yeah um, what should we do? Should we talk through domestication before we get into sort of how we have petted over time? Okay. Does that okay, make sense as me. an order? Okay. So what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about domestication in general and then talk about dogs and cats and very briefly and only because it's funny, rabbits. <laughs> okay. So as I've said, the term domestication is very, very broad and tough to pin down. But the basic definition, if you can have one, is that... It means that an animal's choice for mating is determined by people. 
Okay. Which is called okay. artificial selection as opposed to natural selection and can be an artificial selection can be conscious as you would see in like a posh dog breeder now or mm-hmm. um, or subconscious uh, but basically you know someone might see this this dog is very good with the sheep I will make more dogs from it and then those dogs hopefully will also be good with the sheep yeah um, in that sort of situation or like horse races or whatever racing but horses that kind of thing very very it's like a fluid state because yeah domesticated animals can go feral there can be interbreeding between domesticated animals and the wild counterparts although some domesticated animals their wild counterparts are now extinct so like it's it appears that dogs were descended from a breed of wolf that no longer exists because dogs are genetically as genetically distinct from every current breed of wolf which suggests Mm -hmm. that the breed of wolf they came from or the breeds, multiple breeds might be possible, but suggest that they are now extinct. It's gone so, now. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens a lot. But, I mean, you can still breed some dogs with some wolves, I think. Um, Feels like that's something you wouldn't want to do, but sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, wolves I mean, are people cool. are weird, though. I people got really are very into weird. reading about, like, hyper-masculine perspectives on dogs, particularly, like, toy dogs as, like, degraded wolves. <laughs> And, like, some men, particularly in, like, the Manosphere stuff, take the idea that people might like tiny dogs very seriously and consider it to be an assault on their own personal wolfdom. Um, And, like, (laughs) look what our culture has done to the handsome wolf. (laughs) I mean, it is is pretty funny to look at, for example, Corgi and think, Yeah. At one point in time, you were a wolf, and now you are a Corgi sitting on the lap of Queen Elizabeth. Quite, it is, but that's quite you funny. Know, the wolf still exists. It's not doing the wolf anything. Still exists, and they are both perfectly happy and fine they and delightful. Both have different roles in life, and that is they fine. Do. That is completely also, fine. Also, weren't Corgi some kind of working dog at some point before the I queen got so. into it? Yeah, I think a lot of I th- my basic understanding, and I this is not something I've researched specifically. So my basic understanding is worth basically zero. Is that <laughs> purebred dogs are either bred for work or for fashion and if they are basically functioning on a health level it means they were bred for work like um, you know a jack russell is bred to hunt rats so it's very physically yeah. capable whereas a french bulldog is bred so that it basically can't breathe because it's bred for fashion yeah and they should all be rescued yes. um, it's a tragic situation yeah. and we should all be very ashamed uh, we should that we have we done should. that the other interesting yeah. thing okay, about continue okay sorry that's yeah. interesting thing <laughs> Uh, the, the other marker of domestication is that um, the species has had to adapt to a new diet that is often, and this is grim, poorer than the, than it would have had <laughs> as a wild species. So basically, yeah. we domesticate animals and then we give them shit food. Um, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, and then we're rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, when I was googling around for dog stuff, you, you I found out, like a load of veterinary articles about like. Why are dogs so fat now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, stop feeding your dogs bad food. Yeah. Feed them good or food instead. Just try it. Yeah. Um, another common marker is that domesticated species retain juvenile features into adulthood and past sexual maturity. But basically, the broad, it's a really broad term that covers rather, it's not a finite set of traits. There's like loads of different traits that might be might appear in domesticated species or that might not yeah. like it's a 
Because that also describes like cows and goats and sheep and stuff, which are physical traits and behavioral traits and different ways of socializing and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So, as a concept, domestication dates back to the Neolithic period. Um, This point in time where hunter gatherer groups slowly were starting to establish permanent settlements, uh, which happened in the what's known as imaginatively, the Fertile Crescent, which was just a crescent of land along the Mediterranean Ocean, along the Mediterranean coast that was just super lush and nice and, like, full of deer to be hunted and chickpeas to be harvested and all that sort of stuff. So because there was so much bounty around, people didn't have to go too far to find food. So they could stay in one camp basically permanently and just go out on day-long excursions to try and get food Mm -hmm. and then the longer they stayed there the more they put down proper roots and began building permanent shelters at some point there was a a climate shift called the younger dryas event that probably it's very hard obviously this is thousands of years ago so no one really knows but probably led to the need for more secure and stable food sources so led to the deliberate cultivation of grasses and legumes and keeping animals as a food source and how that worked Mm -hmm. is that they would pick herd animals because it's easier to socialize with animals who already know how to socialize with each other and then dominate a group rather than Mm -hmm. pull together a bunch of individuals so that then also meant that the land that you used to do that became valuable and needed to be defended so that your food source is protected yeah so The interesting thing is that dogs and cats have completely different routes to domestication, which I guess you can see if you look at how they behave now. With dogs, it seems to have started, and again, these these are all archaeological theories. We don't really know much because we're trying to figure out stuff based on fossils from thousands of years ago, but the theory is that wolves, certain types of wolves, began to live more closely alongside nomadic tribes of people, and noticed that there was benefit to them in doing so because if you are following a group of hunters you can pick off their leavings basically if they if an animal they shoot is wounded but survives but kind of stumbles across to the side that's an easy source of food for you so they mm-hmm. started sort of not joining in with the group but living near them so they could always have that source available to them yeah which it becomes then, a useful and easy way to feed yourself exactly but then it also becomes helpful for the for the encampment because the wolves if they are living nearby if there's sort of an approaching threat like other people or other predators then the wolves alert the the camp to their presence so they can defend themselves so it becomes a sort of mutually beneficial symbiotic relationship and Mm -hmm. then over time that started to lead to actual direct interaction and social socialization and bringing in of the wolves into the camp proper and then slowly that led to the development of dogs as they became more and more genetically distinct from wolves yeah which theories go this dates back to around fourteen thousand years ago which is a really long so we had that sort of race for a really long time we don't get to modern dog breeds until around three or four thousand years ago yeah that's yeah when we start to get the dogs we see today um, but the earliest physical evidence of a domesticated dog is 12,000 years ago, which is a jawbone that was found in Iran. And the reason we know it is a dog and rather than a wolf is that it's just a lot smaller 
but <laughs> is an adult jaw. I don't know how we tell yeah. that it's an adult jaw, but but we do somehow. With I think science, it's the teeth. Yeah. Probably the teeth. I'm going to, I mean, what do I know about zooarchaeology? But I reckon teeth. Probably teeth, you would think. They're like, like well into teeth. Yeah. Archaeologists in general and zooarchaeologists, they love it. Yeah. Cats are an entirely different story for two reasons. One, which I feel like people might have noticed earlier when we talked about domesticating herds, they're one of the only domesticated animals that are are solitary animals and have always been solitary. They're also territorial more than interpersonal relationships, so they care more about protecting places and being close to a specific place than they are interested in being close to people or other animals. They also are not particularly adaptive to what they eat. They really (laughs) struggle to process any food that isn't protein. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, dogs can eat basically anything and be fine, but cats... Cats are much better. Cats are great. (laughs) (laughs) So Cats are kind of, like, when you look at the history of the domestication, because I read this article... That was like a de- genetic like analysis of forty billion different types of cats, of which I understood a third. <laughs> Once it got into the genetics, I was out of it, but I explained it quite nicely in actual words <laughs> about cat domestication and how they basically could start coming around for food and then just keep sticking around. And then there's basically kind of two waves of domestication of what's called the Felis Silvestris. Mm-hmm. One comes from like um, Neolithic Anatolia, uh, which is Turkey, basically. And the other comes from Egypt, mm-hmm. which is the culture that is most associated with cats, yeah. I would say. And the culture that we get, like the earliest evidence of domesticated cats, which I think is through drawings and mummified cats, the first illustration of a cat comes from 2500 BCE with a collar. So that's how we know it's extra domesticated. Mm-hmm. And it is a drawing of a cat and a tomb in Saqqara. And the, but the oldest body of a cat is from Hierakonopolis and was found in 2008 and is 5,800 years old. Yeah. The oldest name of a cat also comes from... Egypt and comes from the 11th dynasty, uh, which is like Middle Kingdom. And the cat is called Buhaki and is on a little cat tomb, which means divine ruler of the house. So I I feel very connected (laughs) because Livia is named after an empress and I regularly call her the tiny empress of the house. (laughs) (laughs) So I like that. And they love cats. The thing I like about what we know or have theorised about the domestication of cats is that it's just so, tr- like it's so, yeah. That's that's how cats be because that's uh, how the, came and hung out with us rather than yeah. us going and trying to hang out with cats. Yeah, and it's like there was no um, coming together and start, starting to interact. The way it was phrased in the paper I read is that they um, just wild cats who lived near humans gradually began began to tolerate each other. <laughs> And live yeah. around each other. And that's because I feel like that's what happens when you have a cat. When you have a pet cat, it's it lives in your house and it comes there for food, but it has its own life. It's not like a dog. A dog likes your attention all the time and wants to be talked yeah. to. A cat, See, not so much. Dogs are very needy. 
Like they're very, very reliant on humans to be nice to them and very, like always desperate for attention Mm -hmm. and love and whatever. Whereas cats are much more like, like Livia is, I think, a slightly unusual cat because she is near me all the time. I'm home. She's near me at the moment. And 90% of the time that I'm anywhere, she is probably quite close to me or at least in the same room, which is very difficult when I do yoga at home, frankly. Yeah. But... Um, and some cats are like that and some cats will never come near you yeah but as a general rule like they're living their lives and they choose whether they're going to hang out with you or not yeah and they have demands of you like we um we cat sat for some friends a few weeks ago and their cat who was amazing uh just is off living his own life most of the time and then he'll come and find you and take you to the kitchen so that he can lie down and you can scratch his belly because that happens in the kitchen and then <laughs> and then he'll decide well, it's that time it's, to eat. it's done and it's done and he will get up and, and go away from you and it's just very yeah it's a beautiful thing um i like see this is one of the things i like about the domestication of cats which is that, that we have managed to change so much about their looks and like they don't look like the wild cats that they came from and they're much smaller mm. but we have never managed to really or never even particularly tried to change their behavior <laughs> well this is actually one of the interesting things is that other unlike most domesticated animals cats are generally still the result of natural selection mm-hmm. like obviously we, we breed them now they're purebred cats and things like that but historically in terms of how they were domesticated it was just they started being okay with living closer to us and the cats that were okay with living closer to us interbred amongst themselves in a way that they weren't with the cats who were still living out there and they slowly stopped being wild cats and became smaller domesticated cats. But we didn't control that in the same way as we controlled what was happening with dogs, which is really interesting. They're just, they they have, they, for thousands of years, cats have been independent and they will continue to be independent because they are cats. Because they are cats. And this is interesting because, like, when you're looking at Egyptian cats, if we think of Egypt as, like, one of the earliest places where cats were like very integral to people's homes and lives and like the numbers of cats that have been found are like in the millions Mm. in across this i mean it's a good you know five thousand year sweep of history but like there's cat cemeteries yeah where hundreds of thousands of cats have been found because they mummified them and they liked them yeah that wasn't the only thing. I think that there is this, like, misapprehension that they were the only animal that got mummified. They're just more of them. Like, they did also love their dogs and their cats, their dogs and their other kinds of things, like mongoose, very big, and birds and other things. But cats were by far the most. Um, and it's partly because they're associated with goddesses. Um, one is Mafdet, who is a goddess of, like, justice and judgment in execution, because cats kill rats and serpents and scorpions and will fight anything mm-hmm. and are a kind of protection for the house. And also Bastet, who is the goddess of beauty and fertility and childbirth and what was phrased in one of the books I read written by a man, women's <laughs> secrets. As well, sorry? Women's secrets. I mean, sure. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they were imagining when they were talking about women's secrets. I assume like I love women's secrets because it's invariably just men, men's failure to listen to women. <laughs> yeah. 
but they're like basically they associate cats with something that will kind of walk around your house and protect you from things trying to get into it mm-hmm. so like rats and mice and scorpions and snakes and also constantly pumping out babies because <laughs> they have babies like they can have like two litters a year yeah and nobody as you say Cats, it's only very recently that we've started, like, locking cats in the house. Yeah. Like, Livia doesn't go out, partly because she doesn't want to, but... I say partly, entirely because she doesn't want to. Yeah. But a lot of people have indoor cats now and do terrible things like declaw them, which is evil and you shouldn't do it. Yeah, that is horrible. But... and But like even, from, even people who have outdoor cats generally nowadays will get them spayed or neutered. Will spay them, yeah. But... Cats mostly wander about, and for the vast sweep of history, they were not spayed, so they very regularly came back pregnant. Yeah. And, and then you had loads of cats, and then sometimes they, and then those cats would grow up, and sometimes they'd stick around, and sometimes they'd wander off. Yeah. So, yeah, so those are the two things that they associate with cats, which I like a lot. Yeah. Do you want to hear, this is where I found the lie. Yes. In talking about Egyptians and cats, because there's a lot about, like, the idea that they worshipped cats because there's this cat temple. Mm-hmm. Which they didn't really, not in, like, the sense that, like, they were put on a pedestal and considered to be gods. They just kind of thought that cats were a representation of a divine protection. Mm -hmm. So it's more that they were, like, Loki sacred. Yeah, and they had, not all of them, but largely, um, and that they they had a kind of divinity within themselves Mm. so they're associated so there is this kind of there are cat goddesses as there are also dog goddesses and ibis goddesses and wolf goddesses and whatever Mm -hmm. but there is this idea and one of the stories that i've kept finding in books was that there were bans on the export and trade of cats and the egyptians would not let cats be traded outside of egypt which is given as an explanation for why they don't arrive in Europe until much later or aren't seen as widespread in Europe until like a couple of thousand years later. And I started, I was looking for, because a couple of people said like literally this was written down in stone. So Mm -hmm. I went looking for where this was written down and what the wording was, thinking I would read it out. And I'm searching through and I'm following through references and everything is just a secondary reference like so a book from 2020 references a book from like 20 2002 which references a book from 1990 which references a book from wherever and eventually i got like following these references through which bloody ages and the uh, found a reference to a book called a history of domesticated animals by a man named e zuma mm-hmm. in 1963 which references loads of stuff and then just puts this paragraph in the middle and doesn't reference it so I'm like, okay, it's very no weird idea. to have one thing that's just extreme citation needed. It is extreme citation needed. Um, and the, everything else, like before that, there's like a paragraph of stuff on him questioning the interpretation of something in the British Museum. And then all of a sudden he just whacks this in without saying where it came from. So it's one of those situations that's a bit bizarre because I feel like if he had just written a vague book with lots of stuff that we know to be true, because yeah. we have seen the, the evidence of that. If he had not given citations for all the stuff that we know have them and whacked that in there, then you wouldn't maybe wouldn't question it. But having scrupulously referenced everything else he talks about, throwing in one yeah. unreferenced thing is like, huh. Why would you do it? So I feel like he's probably not lying. Yeah. I just cannot find any further back mm. where he might have got it from and he refuses to say. Yeah. So... I don't know now whether there was a ban on the export or trade of cats. There's lots of stories of them, like, 
rescuing cats from other places or like ransoming cats. I just don't think that it would be possible to ban it though, because <laughs> cats, as we are talking about, you know, they go out and they have babies and there are there end up being loads of cats. I don't think you could present, prevent like some Roman soldier from grabbing a cat and taking it back with like. Well, you see, this is exactly what happens. In fact, in, so I read this great book called Classical Cats. <laughs> and to quote the author, his name is Donald something, Donald Engels. Yeah, Donald Engels, Classical Cats. Mm -hmm. He said, he references that and then he says, however, as is widely noted, cats frequently fail to obey orders. (laughs) Rather, they can invariably be expected to not do so. (laughs) Cat's going to sneak onto a ship because there are rats there and then the ship's going to go to wherever it's going and the cat will get off again. Yeah, which is why what you see across the Mediterranean, so when you start seeing cats appear in other places, like the bodies of cats and representations of cats, you can generally say, hey, look, these are like these people started trading with Egypt, and so cats start here. So Mesopotamia, where there's like obviously Mesopotamia is Iraq and Iran, is always has a strong trading relationship with Egypt once Egypt is unified. Mm-hmm. And so cats start appearing there and you can see in like various texts that they are pottering around the house all the time. And then they always have a very strong trading relationship with like Crete and Anatolia and bits of northern Greece, obviously, because they can practically see them. Yeah. And so what you see is very, very early cats in Crete and in Greece and like bodies of cats in tombs yeah and then as the greeks then start trading with across the mediterranean and start going into italy and beeping into central europe you start seeing cats turn up there because cats go where people like people yeah. take cats with them yeah. <laughs> as their wee pets and then they roll up and then they breed and then they're there yeah and, and you just you can't see put them the cat back in the egypt do you want to know the Eng- earliest English one that I found? Yeah. It dates from the 3rd century BCE. Mm-hmm. So that ends any argument that the Romans helped the spread of cats. <laughs> because that's 300 years before the Romans bothered to turn up. In Iron Age Hill called Gussage All Saints, mm-hmm. which is the most English name for a thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Gussage. Gussage. It really is horrifying. Which, which is in Dorset. They found five little kittens. Ah, Dead, obviously. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Not still alive. That would be very old cats. <laughs> they found some um, immortal kittens. Yeah. There's this theory that Romans spread cats around, but Romans were fine with cats, but fucking loved dogs. Mm, dogs do seem like a very Roman Yeah, thing. they're much more... Romans are less interested in things which are just kind of cute and will do their own thing. They really like dogs a lot. And um, I do like... I am just going to... Because I feel like now we can talk about... Um, you know, what people did with their pets. But I just want to throw in the last domesticated uh, animal that I put in here, which was rabbits. yes, tell me your good one, yes. Rabbits were domesticated by the Romans in 1st century BCE. It's the first time, the first knowledge that we have of that ever being tried. And they were doing it not to to keep them as pets, but for their meat. Yeah, yeah. And just apparently immediately regretted it because the thing about rabbits is that they burrow through the ground and then eat all your crops. (laughs) (laughs) So someone said at the time, I think at the time, now I've lost the quote, so someone said at some point, the only way to domesticate rabbits is to put them on an island where they can't do any damage. 
Yeah. <laughs> Is it Australia that had a real rabbit problem after the Europeans introduced them and then they were just super grateful for myxomatosis? Um, I mean, rabbits are a problem in New Zealand, definitely. Yeah. I imagine they are. Like, they really will fuck up an environment. They if really will them. fuck up an environment. Um, I think it's a lesser problem than stoats and weasels and things, but it's yeah. definitely not great. That seems like something the Romans would do. <laughs> Interestingly enough, actually, there's quite a lot of evidence for like archaic Greek and Anatolian um, and North African eating of dogs, ah. which tends to be seen very much as a, an Asian thing. Yeah. In Asia, they have like different kind of deep breeds of dogs that they'll have for eating and petting. And there is, I read quite a few like modern studies on the, how the way that they differentiate them, but they were also eaten relatively wildly. The way you can tell is that the bones have like scrapes on them. Sure. Or have yeah. been boiled or cooked in some way. Yeah. Also lots, when you find lots of puppies and young dogs, because dogs tend to be eaten when they're very young. Because mm, the meat's better. Exactly. But it's true of everything. It all meat, right? Like you don't. Yeah. You don't want old meat. Oh. Yeah. Romans less so. Romans, you loved dogs. They loved pets. They were really big on animals, actually, but largely because they were a very agrarian society. Like, even when they were living in cities, it was still a very agrarian culture. Mm. And they were always very connected to the earth and very interested in, like, every rich guy that you can imagine had a big farm. Mm-hmm. Like, and that was the ideal of life was having a big farm, which causes a lot of problems. But... <laughs> They're, they're, so they have lots and lots of animals and they're really big. So you get like these, this split between people who are well into big, into hunting and guard dogs, mm-hmm. which are useful and are for keeping on your farm or protecting your stuff or, you know, whatever. <laughs> useful stuff for dogs running around. They have two particular kinds that are both Greek in origin because the Greeks were also really into dogs <laughs> much more than they were into cats. And if you've read your Odyssey, which I assume that everyone listening to this has read the Odyssey several times. <laughs> I've only read it once and that was for school. Oh, you do you know which bit I'm talking about? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't it's the know. bit that most people will remember because it's the bit where Odysseus comes back. It's I want to say 17. He's come back mm-hmm. to Ithaca. He's chatted to his shepherd. Um, he's pretending he's disguised himself as not Odysseus mm. for reasons unclear. Because he wants to trick his trick everyone because he loves he's to trick. He does love to trick. And he's he hasn't seen his wife in 20 years and he doesn't want to just walk up and say, hello, I have returned. He wants to have Why a whole do that? song and dance you can do about a whole it. palaver. You can exactly. shoot an arrow through lots of, like, axe heads or whatever the fuck. Just yep. dressed as some old rando. And just be mean to everybody for no real good reason. Yeah. Anyway, the one thing we know about this is he loves to lie to people. But, so he rolls up, but the one creature that recognises him is his old dog, Argus, Mm. who has been waiting for him for 20 years and who has been neglected by everybody in the household because Odysseus isn't there. And he looks up from his little post by the door and with his age-misted eyes, he sees his old master come home and he is finally happy. Oh, see, we've been loving the myth of the loyal dog. I mean, not a myth, really, but the story of the loyal dog for thousands of years. And that's kind of nice. Yeah, we have. Right up until, like... 
soldiers going off to the world wars and their dog just lies yeah. staring at the front door until they come home again. We love that shit. Yeah. Oh, that episode of Futurama that makes everybody cry. Oh, it's, that's a devastating episode of television. <laughs> it is a devastating episode of Futurama. <laughs> yeah, so they love that kind of thing. They have these two breeds of dogs, which are called the Laconian, which is like, which means Spartan, and the Molossonian. Is that where the word laconic comes from? Yes. That's amazing. Because Spartan and laconic feel like they mean not opposite, but like... Not related things at all, you know? <laughs> yeah, they've kind of got these meanings. But yeah, that's a, the official name for Sparta is Lacomedia. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, so the Laconian dog is a kind of pointy-nosed hound and the Molossonian... I don't know why I can't pronounce this word. Molossian mm-hmm. is a kind of big mastiff type thing. Mm-hmm. And they were used for hunting because Romans were well into hunting, loved it, mm-hmm. and for protecting your flocks of sheep and cattle and things, especially sheep. Sure. From wolves, which were a real problem in Italy. And they you're put into collars with like you were recommended to have a nail studded collar so that if a wolf bit them, they would uh, like, nail. So, so that's where that the spider collar like, comes from. Collar. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, is to protect them if they're bitten by a wolf. So the whole punk movement owes a lot. Is <laughs> a Roman thing, yeah. yeah. Who knew? Amazing. Yeah, so they have all of these, and I think if you asked a lot of Romans, they would like you to associate them with those dogs. <laughs> and certainly, like, going back to the men's rights movement and stuff and the manosphere, like, if they were thinking about Roman dogs, that's the kind of dog. And, like, you know that, beware the dog mosaic from Pompeii mm-hmm. from the house of the sad poet tragic poet sorry always call him the sad poet was not the official I one. mean to be fair everyone <laughs> in Pompeii was tragic yeah um but so there's the mosaic which is a dog that's barking and has a collar and it says beware the dog on it but they were also really into lap dogs particularly the imperial era and one of their favorite types of dog was a, the Maltese dog which was effectively the same then as it was now, um, which is like the tiny little teddy bear. Yeah. White dog. Adorable. Yeah. So they had quite a lot of those. Something that you find is lots and lots of um, epitaphs for dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to hear some epitaphs for tiny little... And for Roman pets. So they buried them with tombstones and they wrote poems on them, which cost a lot of money. So we get things like... My eyes were wet with tears, our little dog, when I bore you to the grave. So, Patricus, never again shall you give me a thousand kisses. Never can you be contentedly in my lap. In sadness I buried you as you deserve. In the resting place of marble I have put you for all time by the side of my shade. In your qualities you were sagacious, like a human being. Oh, what a, lo- what a loved companion we have lost. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. It's, quite, it's a very long poem. Um, it's a very long poem. And things like, I am in tears while carrying you to your last resting place as much as I rejoiced when bringing you home with my hands 15 years ago. <laughs> you can see these in like a nice script font over a soft focus picture on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. Here the stone says it holds a white dog from Melita, the most faithful guardian of Eumelus. Bull, they called him while he was yet alive, but now his voice is prisoned in the silent pathways of night. <laughs> that's so that's so sad. I know, and there's loads of them. And 
Like, they just really love their little dogs. <laughs> they also had weird pets, but they're like, I always like, I'm like a fish and stuff like that, which they had, but I think they were less pets that like hung around in their house and slept on their bed. Mm. Obviously not a fish, that'd be disgusting. <laughs> But, like, they liked to keep exotic pets for people to be impressed by. Mm-hmm. Which is a very typically, you know, statusable, conspicuous yeah. consumption, that kind rich, of thing. Rich people have done that for all time. Like, and to they be drunk with a lion and, you know, dating back to whichever weird Scottish king had an elephant at some point. Yeah. You know. It's, yeah, they it's, like to have that kind of thing. Emperors yeah. like to have lions and things. If you read my book, in fact, you've read my book, you'll know that there was a guy who kept lampreys and that's a bad thing. That, yeah, that was horrible. That was horrifying. But I mean, that's yeah. the reason why we have pelicans in Green Park, you know. It's because yeah. some royal thought it would be fun to have a pelican for a pet. And now they lurk around. There's a really and good book of pelican. Have you read Ellie Williams' um, The Lawyer's yes. Dictionary yet? Yes, yeah, I have. a really good bit a... with a pelican in that. <laughs> it's a very good... Giving a yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but there is a very good scene with the pelican in Ali Williams' The Liars Dictionary. Yeah, um, worth worth it. The price of admission for the bit with the pelican alone. It, it really is, and it's great. But the pelican bit is really spectacular. It really is. Right, this is a point at which I stopped paying attention to dogs at all and started paying attention to cats mm-hmm. because they pop up in unusual places. And then I found something called the Great Cat Massacre. Yes, tell me about this massacre. All right, before that, I'm going to work up because I'm going to tell you. So we have the Dark Ages, which are called the Dark Ages because like not enough writing survives from then to be able to know anything. Not because it was actually dark or horrible, but we don't have a lot about pets during that time, to be perfectly honest. Because we don't but, have a lot about anything during that yeah. time. <laughs> but what happens is we start getting... In the East, there is lots of stuff going on because that is the time when what we do have is lots and lots of beautiful writing from Africa and from Arabia and Mm -hmm. we have the emergence of Islam. Islam loves cats, Mm -hmm. hates dogs, considers (laughs) dogs to be disgusting and useless and indeed harem. And I don't hate dogs, but if I was going to pick, I'd pick a cat. If I was going to be like, one of you can come into my temple and the other one can't, like, one of you can come into the mosque and the other one, mm, I would pick a yeah. cat. Because cats, you just, they know they know how to behave. Yeah. Um, and it sounds quite, like, Muhammad has a cat and is quite into cats. And cats are, like, seen as protectors and helpers in Islam and everybody thinks that they're pretty cool. So we've got quite a lot of cats in the East at this time. I wonder how much that is to do with the fact that cats, unless they're really indulged, cats will still hunt even if they are fed at home, if they see a mouse, they're probably <laughs> going to go after it. Whereas dogs, yeah. once you start feeding dogs and they don't need to find their own food, all they do is bark. <laughs> and <laughs> like, it's around. useful. It can be useful as a, you know, as a warning to burglars, but a dog isn't going to do anything about a rat in your house, probably. It doesn't yeah. have the attention span. It's not going to go on the long <laughs> hunt as, as the rat like hides in the walls. Whereas a cat, the, the long hunt is what it's in it for, you know? Yeah, they love it. They love it. They love it. Yeah, but cats we see are still around a lot. And there is this thing from the 10th century, which is um, Howell the Good of Wales, a man I've never heard of and will probably never hear of again. But he wrote (laughs) a law code. And one of the things that he rated was the worth, like how much you had to pay if someone killed one of your animals, which is a classic of ancient law codes. Mm -hmm. So 
A cat is worth one penny when it is born. Okay. Until it opens its eyes. So you've got like three or four days before it opens its eyes. Mm-hmm. As soon as it opens its eyes, it's worth two pennies. Sure. Makes sense. It tracks. And then up until the point where it catches a mouse, when it's capable of catching a mouse, it's worth four pennies. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't sound like a lot, but that is the same amount as a sheep. Oh, wow. That is, that's a decent... It's a, a good amount. Yeah. If you wanted your hamlet, your village, to be considered a kind of lawful hamlet, lawful village, like to have the illegal designation of a village, you had to have a mm-hmm. cat. Um, there had really? to be a village cat. Of, like, like there had to be a socialised cat. <laughs> yeah. Not, not like one person has a, has a cat for themselves, but there has to be a cat like that a belongs to everyone. Cat. Yeah. I love that. that. Just, and village cats are very popular during this time, like the cat that belongs to the village. And Meander, I suspect mm. it always begins with one, and three months later there's 28. I feel like this is this is a valid way to do cat. Just yeah. We as a community, here is our cat. Yeah. And sometimes it sleeps at my house and sometimes it sleeps at someone else's house, and that's fine. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. And in a divorce, the keeping of the cat was as important as the keeping of any other animal. Mm-hmm. So the rule was that if you lived in 10th century Wales, if one, you had one cat between you then and you got a divorce, then the husband kept the cat. Okay. But if you had two or more, then the husband got the first one and the wife kept all the rest. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. In Saxony, about the same time, they valued cats even more highly. So Saxony is in Germany. If you found guilty of killing a cat, then you had to pay 60 bushels or two sheep. Wow. Yeah. So what this implies to me is that for a long time, around about the 10th century, there's a lot of cats everywhere. People yes. quite into them. And people think that they're very important and they're protecting people's grain because protecting grain from mice is like a yeah, very important a part important. of rural life. Yeah. And so when in the kind of 12th, 13th century, witchcraft kicked off as an issue. Mm-hmm. You say witchcraft kicked off. The persecution of witches. I'm saying witchcraft kicked off as an issue. Like, people became very interested in persecuting witchcraft. But, but the witchcraft was not the issue. The issue was the persecution. All right, the persecution the of the real. witchcraft kicked off as an issue. <laughs> Cats were became related very strongly with Satan and became... so sneaky. Because they are kind of... Because they... Because they are keeping women's secrets. Yeah, because of the women's secrets. Um, and because of things like, I imagine, you know that bit in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia where Charlie says that cats don't obey the laws of physics and that's how they get inside <laughs> the walls. Like, yeah. Like, they do that kind of thing. They do do that kind of thing. They become associated with demons. You get people like St. Dominic, who is like 12th century, um, saying that black cats and black and white cats were represent were in fact the devil himself appearing so this is where the superstition about black cats crossing apart yeah. starts um, and black cats mm. like are said to appear when satan is around um, and this is exacerbated this is why i mentioned this something because this is the same time that um western europe is coming into strong contact with islam again um, mm-hmm. particularly through Spain. And on the one hand, they're getting lots of science. And on the other hand, they're really not enjoying coming into contact with Islam <laughs> and crusades and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so the association of cats with Islam in very strongly feeds their association with Satan and demons in the church mind. Naturally. And so cats begin to be persecuted and burnt alongside 
women and men who were persecuted for witchcraft. And then in 1233, Gregory IX, the Pope, issues something called the Vox in Rama, which sanctions the extermination of all cats, especially black ones, and their female owners. Cool, cool. Which means that for many church people, the possession of a cat especially a black cat, becomes excuse enough to excuse someone of witchcraft. I feel like there's something comforting in it, like, in every so often just being reminded that we've, people have always been kind of shit. We've always been ready to just have a moral panic over something. <laughs> yeah. And, like, I feel like we talk about moral panics and it seems like such a modern thing. You think about the satanic panic of the 80s and or of bathroom panic now and that sort of thing, but actually we've just been doing it forever and that's the source of a lot of just brutal murders that have happened yeah. for yeah. thousands of years. There's millions of them. So what happens is lots and lots of cats are killed um, and tortured. They are burnt to death by being put into baskets and suspended above fires. Jeez. Sometimes alongside their owners, sometimes in their own little executions. And there is a very strong sense in Western Europe, especially in England and France, that cats should be exterminated as evil, which was obviously awful and there's something about burning an animal which makes it so much worse because they can't understand yeah. what's happening because they yeah, have little this is the thing that I, like this is the thing that always is a like i struggle with whether it's animals or babies like this is a problem i had when my oldest nephew was teething like he doesn't understand like he just doesn't even understand why he has to be in this amount of pain you can't take it away you can't make it stop and it just has to happen, and it's going to be dreadful. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't deal with that sort of thing at all. It makes me so upset. No, same. They don't get it. Anyway, this then comes around to be a problem, even more of a problem in Western Europe, because 100 years after they started trying to exterminate cats and really <clears throat> stamp them out, the Black Death starts, which is spread oh. by rats. Which, which would have all been killed if there were more cats. Were largely being kept at bay by cats. <laughs> <sighs> Why do we do this to ourselves over and over again? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so <laughs> then the Black Death rampaged through and killed a third of Europe. Oh, God. People are... We're, we're really stupid and we do the same things and we never learn... And it is comforting to know that modern people aren't uniquely stupid. But also, like, where is the end? Is there an end point? Can we ever actually, like, learn to behave? I, I think we cannot. Potentially, we just can't. We're There's no hope for us. No. But, yeah, so what I take from this is that dogs are of no use whatsoever against plagues. Have cats. Yeah, have cats. Cats will stop. I've turned, I've been sounding like I'm very anti dog in this. It's just that I really like cats. <laughs> Um, and I'm very lazy. I think it's very important to know that I'm a lazy person. You're a low maintenance pet. Dogs need so much from mm. you. Mm. Um, and I don't want to have to walk a dog every time it needs a wee. No. I'm much happier that Livia can take herself to the bathroom. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's why cats are good. Um, that's <laughs> the end of my presentation and why cats are great. And then when what happens is that we get industrialization and we start um, kind of industrializing pet ownership at a degree they had not been. Mm. And now there's probably more pets or like companion animals that have no working use is at that, all. Is that mainly because 
most people now or more people than in the past have jobs that don't have physical requirements. Like we are yeah. not an agrarian society anymore. So, And a lot of the jobs that were done by dogs and cats and horses and... Are done by machines. Yeah, done by machines and pesticides. Yeah. And are industrialized and we need them less. But we've kept animals around because we think they are cute. Yeah. Or because they fulfill a an emotional need that was not fulfilled. And there's a lot of them. I found some numbers that were on a survey that was done in 2003. So it's a bit out of date, but some surveys I find, which suggested that about 65% of American families or American households mm-hmm. own a pet. Yeah. Of which cats are the most popular, mm-hmm. um, with 77 million cats, and then 65 million dogs. Mm-hmm. And then there's quite a big drop off <laughs> from 65 million to 16.8 million small animals. So, like guinea pigs and rabbits mm. and, and hamsters. Like birds. And... We haven't really talked about pet birds. We haven't. Pet birds are big in Rome. They're well into pet birds, especially birds that can talk or sing. Mm-hmm. They're like very, very highly prized. And I find like Agrippina had pet birds and was very into pet birds. Uh, my grandparents, my, uh, my Oma and Opa had a pet canary when I was a kid. And once I knocked, oh, it was like in one of those cages that's on a big stand. And I knocked the stand over <laughs> and the cage broke open in the bird flew away into the sky and I have never felt so bad about anything in my entire life. I think they got him I think they got him back and he was fine, but it was very traumatic for me. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. My nana, my dad's mum had birds and they were infuriating. And every time they would talk to each other, which you can either find really delightful mm. or it's just a constant high-pitched noise. Birds uh, are interesting because they seem like they don't get attached, but they really do. We had a great aunt who died when I was about 12 or 13, and she had a cockatoo, cockatiel? Not a big with yeah. the big white one, like the small, nice grey one who is, you know, meant to sing and talk a lot. And so after she died, we kept the bird, and he just never sang again and he died within a few weeks and just obviously was just so sad that he didn't he loved his he loved he loved her and yeah it was very yeah it's real sad yeah i think i suspect that like bird ownership is not something that is well covered in the literature that i could find but it's definitely a thing that people have done for a very long time because again they're delightful when they talk and mimic and and they're one of those like like they're pretty useless. Like no one's keeping them around for a useful purpose. They're keeping Except them around because it's nice. Except for pigeons and chickens. Except for pigeons and chickens, whatever. Yeah. Um, but they're not caged, like. Yeah. Really, like not in the same way as, uh, like Romans would keep caged birds yeah. quite a lot and have aviaries of and and birds that were their favourites. There's a nice story in Pliny actually about Britannicus and Nero trying to teach a bird to sing and talk. It's oh. Nightingale. They're trying to teach it to talk, which I always find a very sweet story. That's very nice. It's nice when, when your murderous despots have a nice moment with a bird. <laughs> I mean, he was a he was a big child then. He was like you know, sure. 10 or something. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no one knew what was going to become of him. 
And Agrippina had quite a lot of birds. People were always giving her birds. Mm-hmm. I think this was like, you know, when like a man says he's into whiskey and then every Christmas and birthday for the rest of time, they just get whiskey and whiskey related accessories. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like this might have been a similar situation where one time she said, I like birds. And then everyone for the rest of birds. time, everyone just gave her birds. <laughs> Which would have been a lot of people because she was a powerful woman to everyone wanted to impress her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I have one last bit that I found because I found an article about it and it was interesting, so I just want to say, <laughs> talk about it, which is about how the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Revolution attempted to eradicate pet ownership, uh-huh. especially dog ownership, which they, like, in 19, like 20s and 30s, there was quite a lot of writing from Bolshevik writers about how family dogs were a decadent diversion of the exploiting classes and were parasitical and were kind of integrally both feminized and um, bourgeois <laughs> and that they instead tried to develop this idea of a, a, a Bolshevik dog who was contributed and was a, a working dog and rather than being kind of burdensome or selfish behavior and pet ownership was a part of private property which they were trying to eradicate for a while mm-hmm. and like they really wrote quite a lot about demonizing the concept of pet dogs they just you know they just did not they did not enjoy fun the bolsheviks i don't think they didn't mm-hmm. and then like that didn't last very long and after a while they then started to try to develop the image of the loyal dog, the loyal pet dog as being an idealised mm-hmm. Soviet. Like in the 50s and 60s, this image of a, a loyal, idealised dog came through as a, a the most unselfish and giving of relate like animal relationships. Sure. Like it gives because it wants to. So you don't own it, it's just like involuntary servitude to you because it loves you so much. (laughs) Yeah, but I found that interesting. Yeah. And then as um, like the hardline Bolshevik stuff was eroded away out of the realities of Soviet communism, that kind of got eroded away. But I like that they, I found it interesting that they went for pet ownership. Yeah. (laughs) As a part of trying to eradicate everything that was normal it's interesting that they change their view like i mean that's what happens right because different people come into power and make the calls but at one point it was just like all pets are bad because they are privately owned and so they are bad and also they are leeches and don't contribute to being like yes this is an idealized relationship and everyone should have one yeah yeah actually you should model yourself upon the dog like that's quite a swing it is. That was a, from an article called Bringing the Beast Back in, the Rehabilitation of Pet Keeping in Soviet Russia. Oh. And it was about, yeah, how it became, like, they sort of backtracked. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're like, actually, it's cool. I you wonder if it, that's just because, like, one person rose through the ranks who had had a really nice dog as a boy and was like, I want, everyone should have a dog like that one. I had that one time. <laughs> Can't promise that it wasn't. Yeah. But I feel like pet ownership or just having animals around as part of the household even if they're not like, like going back to the beginning again, before this gets too long, like the definition of pet or of companion animal is always quite challenging. And like an animal that is allowed in the house is given a name and is never eaten Mm -hmm. or is kept for primarily companionship purposes. 
Yeah. But even then, I feel like, like it's debatable. Like, I feel like there are people who would consider, who would, like, have a horse and consider that a pet. Yeah. This is a lot of crossover. Yeah. With, like, if you're a small family that has, like, a dog that sleeps in the house and also works mm. and has a name and it, like, it is your dog that, you know, it has a name, you're not going to eat it, it sleeps in your house at night, but it also has a job. Yeah. And, like... There are definite, like, it's a very blurry line, which is why it's so hard. And horses, as you say, and, like, if you've got one cow, like, you might eat it down the line, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't a beloved pet up until the point where you eat it. Yeah, And it doesn't mean just because you eat its products. An animal that you have an emotional relationship with. It's not just a one sheep of a herd of sheep. It is, it has personality that you enjoy. Yeah. You have a connection with. But then maybe you've got 500 sheep, but one child in your family really likes one sheep. Yeah. That it raised from a baby, but it's still going to get eaten and go back into the herd. Yeah. <laughs> Having gone on a lot of cottage holidays on farms when I was a child, which I don't even know if it's a thing that happens anymore, but about two thirds of my childhood holidays where we would go to a farm in Wales mm-hmm. and it would be a working farm and we would chill on the farm for a week and there would be like barn cats and yeah. horses and we'd milk some cows yeah. and chill with some lambs. And they were brilliant. This would be called a staycation these days. A staycation, isn't it? Look, I did not make up this term and I have no real emotional horse in this race. But staycation means you take off time from work and you stay in your house, right? It doesn't mean you don't leave the country. Most people don't leave the countries when they're on holiday because they can't afford to. I feel like this is an argument we have already lost. I just, it makes me, I don't know why it makes me so annoyed. (laughs) It really annoys me too. And it's partly because I feel like it is casting some kind of class-based dispersion on literally every holiday I took as a child until I was about 15. And added to that... It's just a fucking stupid word. It is. It is. I hate it. Anyway, going to Hereford or Wales on holiday is a holiday, unless you happen to be in your house in Hereford. Yes, I agree. Anyway. Anyway, that do you think that'll do? I think that'll do. I think that's the history of pits. What are we going to talk about next time? Next time, we're talking about poison, which is convenient because I just talked about poison for the Australians, but... Uh, this is for everybody else. And we are answering a question from Rachel Holdsworth. Love Rachel Holdsworth. Friend, friend of the podcast. Wonder- friend of the podcast, woman. Rachel Holdsworth. She's got a great cat. She does have a great cat. Highly recommend her cat. And she asked, what are some of history's most notorious poisonings? That is a, such a good question. It is. We're going to talk about poison, poison, poison. Yes. That sounds exciting. Yeah. I know, right? Yeah. Where can people find us if they have a question? They can. It's been a long time. I feel like I'm going to have to check. <laughs> they can find us at Sexy <laughs> History Pod on Twitter. Yeah, something's gone weird with that, and I'm trying to fix it. But yes. Mm-hmm. Mm. I um, think it keeps thinking they, that we're a spam because we have sex in our title. Yeah, which is a real problem. Mm. Or they can email us at uh, sexyhistorypod at gmail.com. Or find us on Facebook at sexy. History Pod, because Facebook is approved and does not approve of the word sex. Or we have a Kofi where you can go and you can give us three quid and buy us a coffee if you would like to, which is always helpful for when I have to occasionally buy books for this. And that's also where we put our sources and notes and that sort that is, of thing. Yeah. And I'll maybe put some pictures of some ancient cats and dogs and things, mm. which is at bit.ly slash support sexy history or Kofi HIS pod. You can find me at at Nuclear Teeth. And I am at J9 and if. And Oliver is at Kiwa. And that's it, I think. Yeah, that's, that's better. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
All right. All right. Bye, Janina. Bye. Bye. Yeah.